0: hello, everyone. My name is Jessica. And I'm Caitlin. And this is the Calling All Spirits podcast. How are you, Miss Caitlin? I'm
1: doing fairly good, actually. Uh, significantly better than last week. Um, <gasps> although I need my phone's Bluetooth to stop doing weird stuff. Like it not connecting in the car for me to drive to work is not pleasant. Because somehow the, the sound of the volume is louder coming from my phone. And it's, like, on a pitch, I'm, like, turning the volume down, whereas it was hooked into the car audio, I know I'd be fine.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's so weird. Well, at first, I got excited when you're, well, at first, when you're, like, my Bluetooth is doing something weird, I wanted to be, like, is it haunted? But no, it's just. No, it's just, it's (laughs) throwing a
1: conniption fit is what it's doing. (laughs) Because it's connecting to my headphones that quit working two years ago, but it's not connecting to my truck or my little Bluetooth speaker that Joey got me. Like, it's oh, no. it's picking and choosing what it wants to do. It's mad that I made the internet work again. And now it's thrown a fit.
0: <laughs> Darn it. I was going to try to tie it into the podcast with ghosts, but now it's just stupid technology.
1: <laughs> nope. It's an ornery child rather than a poltergeist, unfortunately. <laughs> How about you? You have an ornery child. Do you have a poltergeist or the kid doing stuff?
0: (laughs) I do have a sweet one. He is being very sweet. So he is being a really sweet little boy. And um, we're doing good just starting the week. And um, I am just glad to be talking to you. Like I'm ready to dive into this. This is kind of our first. We've had our intro episode, but this is like our first real episode Well, we're going to get into some history.
1: Yeah, we get to give the background on everything. um, Because we're not just starting off with the most famous part of spiritualism that everyone jumps off with. We're going further back in time to lay the groundwork for why it exploded everywhere when it took off.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, there are two men that really... Kind of jumpstart this and not that spiritual activity and communing with spirits and that it's not that that wasn't around before these two guys. It's just when we think of modern spiritualism, this is kind of where it jumpstarts is. is, um, But there was a lot of evidence of communing with spirits and talking to spirits before.
1: Oh, yeah. No, that goes all the way back to like Mesopotamia and Greece and all all of the ancient civilizations, talking to people on the other side is not new by any stretch.
0: No, no. And of course, we'll get into all that. But um, since we're kind of starting our podcast series off with modern spiritualism, why not?
1: Start, start with, with modern spiritualism. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then we'll dive into all the other fun stuff. Um, I mean, I can't wait to get into some of the ancient...
1: Absolutely. Tradition.
0: Oh, so much fun. But tonight we are talking about Emanuel Swedenborg and Mesmer. And I'm going to go ahead and tell the audience, I apologize. For some reason, I have an issue saying Swedenborg. And you know what? It may come off as Swedenborg. I apologize to him in spirit. And those who follow him, I'm sorry. I'm just saying I'm sorry in advance. Please excuse if you hear Swedenborg. But I'm going to do my best. That it's Swedenborg. I feel like I have to pronounce it like special, <laughs> but um, oh, I'm gonna. I've been working on it. It's all right. You got this. <laughs> well, do, are, do you want to go ahead and jump in and um, find out more about these guys?
1: Absolutely. Um, and Swedenborg is <laughs> a little bit further back in time than Franz Anton Mesmer, so you get to go first. Okay.
0: Okay. Well, here we go. So who was Emanuel Swedenborg? Well, he was an 18th century Swedish scientist, philosopher, theologian, botanist, um, psychologist. I mean, the list goes on and on, but he was also a seer. And he has sometimes been described as the father of modern spiritualism. So Obviously he accomplished a lot in his life and we're going to dig into that. So he was born in Stockholm, Sweden in 1688 and he was the second son of Jesper Swedenberg and it was Berg then. It was.
1: Wait, they changed um,
0: it? They did. They did. Um they became nobles and then it changed to Swedenborg. So oh, I think that's why I get confused. <laughs> it's like the just
1: it's like the the Duchess When she went from Georgiana to Georgiana or whatever the heck she shifted it. Like, (laughs) it's pretension is why, oh my God, I can't, I can't. So
0: I guess technically when I say Swedenberg, I'm not completely off. It was that, it just changed. You're just listening to
1: his grandma over his shoulder saying, that's not how you say our name.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Get
1: over yourself. (laughs)
0: You're right. It's their fault.
1: No, I'm just kidding.
0: Okay, so it, it makes sense to look at who his father was. So Sweden, Jesper Swedenborg, his father was a prominent member of the Swedish clergy, court chaplain, professor of theology, and later a bishop. So he comes from a religious background and, um, and an education background as well. At the age of 11, Swedenborg entered the University of Uppsala and completed his studies in 1709 at the age of 21. So, really smart guy. Now, as was customary for men of his status and his wealth, Swedenborg journeyed abroad to expand on his knowledge and fascination of mainly at that time was mathematics and natural sciences. So I mean, this sounds amazing. He traveled to England, Amsterdam and Paris, France, Just studying everything he was interested in, which included botany, geology, zoology, and the sciences. He even ran in the same circles as Sir Isaac Newton as well.
1: Where do I sign up for reincarnating into that life?
0: (laughs) No kidding. Like, we're just, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like when people graduate college and they take a year or two. Just like travel around
1: Europe because their family has the money for them to be able to do so.
0: No big deal big deal yeah and study anything and everything you're interested in so he got to do that lucky guy but he does eventually return home to Sweden and he worked as an assistant to a Swedish inventor and he was later given this really prestigious position at the Board of Mines by Sweden's King Charles um the 12th so I mean he gets he rises in the ranks. Now, during this time, he's also doing a lot of scientific research. Um, once again, focused mainly on scientific scientific and technical work. Um, and some of his inventions, because he's got all these projects and things he's working on and dreaming up, including these ideas for a submarine, when nobody even knew what that was, and a flying machine, too.
1: Wait, some I thought this- submarines didn't come about until the American Civil War.
0: Exactly. So, I mean, he's got these ideas. Now, I don't. He, he never built one, obviously. And I don't know if he had a model, but he had designs and ideas for submarines and flying machines, which AK would later be airplanes. So, Did he really s- cool.
1: Did he study anything under
0: Da Vinci? I don't know. I know where you're going. I don't know. And if that's where some of his inspiration came from, because yeah. you're right, Da Vinci had... A flying machine so possibly no. i mean he's traveling around europe very possible he's writing books on chemistry physics and the first book in swedish on algebra so oh is that all no and it's kind of like okay so why is he the father of modern spiritualism we're gonna get there so his next work dynamics of the soul's domain. So he he started working on a series of books on on anatomy that addresses the blood, heart, brain, nervous system, and the soul, which is really cool because I doubt any anatomy books written today even discuss
1: the soul. I sincerely doubt it. (laughs) yeah probably not but his
0: did and he described this subtle spiritual fluid that permeates and sustains all living creatures and it basically flows with the blood throughout the body but it's a spiritual fluid um and just the body the reason we have our energy and we sustain life is because of god and so this is where the spiritual fluid comes from it all comes from god And that's how the body works. So that was his idea. So we're getting a little bit closer to that spiritual side of him. We're working there. Now, in 1743, where he's in his 50s, and some people go through a midlife crisis. Well, he goes through a spiritual crisis, also around midlife. But it's more of a spiritual crisis.
1: I mean, if you've ever seen people have a midlife crisis, sometimes it involves changing their spiritual direction pretty hardcore. So I vote I, I we call it a midlife crisis. It's fine with me.
0: <laughs> but you're, you know what? You're right. Yeah, exactly. So he did. So in 1743, Swedenborg began to experience intense dreams and visions at night and started writing them down, literally like in a dream journal, which people do today and are encouraged to do. He started writing down all these dreams and visions, and um, it opened up the afterlife to him while he was still alive. That's how it's described, that he was open to it. And some compare it like similar to what people experience with a near life, uh, near death experience, excuse me. So these dreams and visions led him to begin writing an exploration of the inner meaning of the Bible based on his new understandings, uh, but also starting to understand what is the afterlife like what happens after we die so this turns in because he's already written a lot of books he just starts writing theological writings um and so this is what's interesting his main focus is a lot on the bible he published his first theological work secrets of heaven and he went through the bible verse by verse and kind of discussed it and the inner meanings of the Bible and even throwing in his own thoughts on the Bible and what it really means. So he's going verse by verse through this entire Bible.
1: He commentated and- verse by verse yes. the Bible in writing. Yes. That's a long book.
0: It is. It's a very long book. So <sighs> that that's kind of his first first step that he did. Well, that's one heck he- of a step. <laughs> It is, it is, it is. He also later included principles that would become key parts of his theology in this, which those principles were the correspondence between the physical world and the spiritual world. We see where he's going with this, the structure of heaven and hell, which this was interesting. He talked about how death was very peaceful and heaven, like when you get to heaven, you're surrounded by angels, um, the afterlife was more real than this life. I don't know exactly what this means. I I understand it, but I don't know the full length of it. Everyone is placed according to what they truly love the most. But he also described people's homes and their relationships, even sounds and smells. So placed where, placed according to what you truly love the most. Maybe where you loved being on earth or who you love being around. I'm assuming that's kind of what he's getting at. Um, The lives of angels and devils and the interaction between the soul and the body. So this is really what he is working on during this time. I also love he had five more publications that included what we were just talking about, descriptions of the afterlife, the inner meaning of the Bible, the beings that live on other planets,
1: Ooh. That one's interesting to me.
0: In our solar system and outside of our
1: solar system. Interplanetary.
0: I know. I'm like, aliens?
1: <laughs> Is this right? how we're getting at? <laughs> like, are we going to go play on the rings of Saturn? What's going on?
0: I know. I know. And I will fully admit, I have not read these
1: works, but that
0: I'm really curious. Um, And The Last Judgment in New Jerusalem. So he's writing a lot on these ideas and his theologies. Now, this is to me when I think it gets really fascinating in his life. So he starts becoming seen as a seer. And so and that's someone that's what we would think of today is like psychic or mediumship work, but they called it seership. So there's three um, famous instances of this. The first one's in July of 1759, Swedenborg is at this dinner party, and he just suddenly becomes really agitated and telling everybody there's a fire in Stockholm, it's almost at my house, and he's 250 miles away from Stockholm, but he's talking about this fire that's headed towards his house. Um, I can't imagine him at this dinner party just kind of like in a panic of my house is about to burn down.
1: You can imagine it. We both have anxiety
0: we can but it's like what were those people thinking oh yeah from the
1: outside point of view yeah no seeing that spontaneously happen would definitely be confusing
0: it would it would and so he's he's upset and then a little bit later at two hours to be exact he reports don't worry the fire has been extinguished so i guess everybody was like
1: okay we weren't worried dude but thanks for sharing (laughs)
0: But two days later, messengers from Stockholm arrived and confirmed the details. So he was right. And how, how, before technology, he knew about this 250 miles away. So that's the first instance. I love this one. In 1760, the widow of a recently deceased French ambassador to Sweden was presented with a bill for very expensive silver service that her husband had bought. So her husband bought her the silver service and now they're like, okay, you never paid. We need our money. But she swears, no, I know he paid for this. So she turns to Swedenborg for help. And after she went to him for help, she had a dream of where the receipt for the payment was. And when she woke up, she went and looked and that's where it was. So he helped her find the receipt to prove that her husband had paid for the silver service. Um, Now, the last one was in 1761. Swedenborg was presented at the court of Sweden's queen, and she asked him to relay a particular question to her deceased brother. Swedenborg left, returned to court three weeks later, and gave her the answer privately, upon which she was heard to exclaim that only her brother would have known what Swedenborg had just told her. I think it's interesting he got to leave and come back after three weeks.
1: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) granted, like, now, even just leaving for 20 minutes would be seen as a little bit sus just because you could go Google something. But, like, granted, without the communication abilities they had, that's still three weeks. That's more than enough time to write to a friend of her brother's and get an answer. Like...
0: I yes. Um, I'm not saying it wasn't real. I'm not saying that. I just think it's interesting that three weeks later. That's all I'm putting out there. That's all I'm putting out there. We're not
1: saying that he was shady about it. We're saying that it's interesting.
0: Just, and and kind of thinking of mediums and how we work today.
1: Yeah, no, we don't get that kind of leniency for the most part. There are situations where it happens where, Mm -hmm. like, um... I don't know. It comes down to trust a lot of the time. So I guess if mm-hmm. she had good instincts about him and she trusted him, cause yeah. I can see in passing, like if I was trying to figure something out and you sat with it for three weeks and then it came to you, cause somebody on my side of the family that I refuse to listen to because <laughs> I'm me, um, you know, <laughs> so like, fine, I'm going through somebody else to get you the answer then. Um, I can see that being a three week gap.
0: Yeah. And Who me, knows- and me
1: accepting yeah. it but
0: true true and i don't have the background maybe he was just traveling through saw her and couldn't come back i mean there there may be a lot more to that story but it just wouldn't even a hundred years ago i don't think you would have been able to get away with that not
1: for three weeks no
0: no but hey he he produced the word that she said only her brother would know so we will take it um and of course he became famous after that naturally naturally um so over the years he just continues to publish more theological works that deal with spirituality including um his last one being true christianity it is important to state that he never wanted to be revered as a prophet or a founder of this new religious movement <laughs> um even Whoops. though he's putting yeah he, he kind of is but that wasn't his mission that wasn't his goal and this is what i think's fascinating. Um, before he dies, he describes five ages of humankind's spiritual history. So we're just going to look at three of them. The first age was being what he considered our spiritual infancy. when pe- And he felt this is when people were most in tune with God. That's the first age, the fourth age, which I'm assuming we're probably in now, according to the his timeline, I'm I'm guessing the fourth age being Christianity, when people possess true teachings in the form of the word, which is the Bible. But those teachings had gradually been corrupted by human misinterpretation.
1: Oh, yeah, no, we are very much neck deep in that one
0: yes i kind of feel that too only because when i look at the fifth age i don't think we're there so that's why i feel like we are very much in the fourth age now his fifth age the final age was the emergence of a completely new religion in which people would have a much clearer and more direct understanding of spiritual truth so that's his fifth age
1: yeah no we are not there
0: i don't think so either i don't think so either i very much feel i agree with you in the fourth age now Sadly, of course, uh, Swedenborg does pass. In December of 1771, he suffered a stroke and really never fully recovered. This is fascinating. He even predicts his own death, which this is impressive. So he's re- uh, someone wrote to him saying, um, we want to meet with you. Um, and the date was six months away. And he replied, that would be impossible because I'm going to die on March 29th. And true to his word, Swedenborg passed away on March 29th, 1772, at the age of 84 years old. So that's impressive <laughs> when you can predict your own death, I think. Now,
1: oh, do you have Okay, so this is terrible. Of I can me, tell but, you're like, <laughs> um, <laughs> right? Like, in my face speaks volumes.
0: I know. Um, Please share.
1: No, there was an episode of House back in the day where he had a mu- uh, a magician that he was treating and the guy predicted his own death and House was like, cool! Either he's right and he's famous for it or he's wrong and everyone forgets about it. So my question is is this the first time Swedenborg had tried to predict his own death?
0: <laughs> not be
1: loud. <laughs> like, strike five, bud. You better be right this next time or we're not gonna accept you anymore. Like, had he had I mean, he tried before or or was it legitimately he saw it coming and was just solid about it, which is absolutely valid and totally possible. Yeah. But when I hear people predicting their own death, I immediately see <laughs> I see you, Lowry, in my head, bad mouthing a magician, because that's how life works. <laughs> <I'm
0: sorry. laughs> well, I mean it's true. It's true. We will take it on history that he nailed it and knew what he was going to, but it's a valid question. It's a very valid question. So to finish Mr. Swedenborg out and his connection to spiritualism, which we know spiritualism is this new religious movement that emerges in the 19th century. And we're going to dive deeper into this in, a, in our next podcast, but just to set it up um, it became especially popular following the 1847 publication of the book, The Principles of Nature, Her Divine Revelations, and a Voice to Mankind by a uh, Mr. Andrew Jackson Davis. And Davis claimed to have received the book's content from the spirit of Emanuel Swedenborg, who visited him in a trance. So all his, so Davis's teachings and theology was said to have come from Swedenborg. And when Davis became enormously popular in the spiritualist movement, of course, Swedenborg did as well. Now to end, I think this is really interesting because we we are talking about Swedenborg and, and his role. And in The Secrets of Heaven, first published in 1749, Swedenborg wrote... The Lord of Divine Mercy has granted me the opportunity for several years now, without break or interruption, to keep company with spirits and angels, to hear them talking, and to speak with them in turn. So, obviously, this is why he ties so well to spiritualism and why. Andrew Jackson Davis would have had a connection to him because he is openly saying he communicates with spirits. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote in his book, The History of Spiritualism, that, and I'm quoting, in point of fact, every spiritualist should honor Swedenborg and his bust should be in every spiritualist temple as being the first and greatest of modern mediums. So obviously he thought highly. Now, last thing, it's almost a warning. This is what's interesting. Though Swedenberg openly talked about his communication with spirits, he warned others against attempting to contact the spirit world because he believed it was too easy for evil spirits to fool the unwary and that the gift of speaking with angels was something that had to be given by the Lord rather than sought by people on earth. But those warnings were clearly ignored by the members of the spiritualist movement who actively sought to contact spirits. So they admired Swedenborg, but they kind of just ignored his advice completely.
1: And I mean, like, his advice, oh, it could be good, it could be bad. Why am I such a cynic? I want to just be like, he was so considerate because (laughs) people should not reach out blindly into spirits. Like, oh, cool, your house is haunted. Go talk to them. Or don't. Maybe don't. I don't know, how good are you with that emotional willpower thing? But Mm -hmm. at the same time, like, no one else is allowed to do this, because I'm special and important, and no one else can be as good as I am. Like, I don't, I don't know, because I just don't know.
0: Well, I think it's okay, Uh, even as historians, it's okay to look at this objectively, and it could be either way. I do know that there is concerns, you know, about just, like, Reaching out to the spirit world, or you know how people are like, don't use a Ouija board, and you may contact evil spirits. That may be kind of where he was coming from, but yeah. I'm kind of like you too. like, only I can do this, you can't do that. I, it, it kind of rubs me the wrong
1: way. Yeah, it has to be given by God. Okay, who's going to determine that it was given by God?
0: Well, and who's to say if Sarah down the street can also communicate with spirits? I, you know, it's like, well... Did God give that to her? You? You're saying you're basically I, like I don't know because yeah, that that one I have some thoughts on. I yeah, because like you on- said,
1: the warnings with the Ouija board—they're valid. Like, don't right. go out there asking for stuff necessarily. Right. I mean, if you want to, go for it. Consequences <laughs> are going to be a thing. Um, but like his—I don't know because he oh. He he, re- he reeks of I'm special, don't even try to be like me, but also it's a valid warning. So yeah. I don't I'm know. Just, Maybe he was a selfish jerk and he happened to include something good for humanity.
0: <laughs> Maybe. I guess we'll never know. Honestly, he's really the only one that would know. But if anybody wants to learn more about Swedenborg, there is a Swedenborg Foundation. And the mission is to, I'm just going to read it, it's to foster an affirmative, informed, and increasingly broad engagement with the theological message disclosed by Emanuel Swedenborg. So it's a nonprofit whose whole purpose is to help people learn about Emanuel Swedenborg and his writings, and you can get his books, and their mission is to help people find new ways to engage with his thoughts and his um, teachings. And it was founded, actually, it was founded in 1849. And where would you guess? What state would this be founded in 1849?
1: Wait, you said state, so I'm assuming it is in the U.S.
0: Yes, it's in the U.S.
1: Either New York or Massachusetts.
0: New York in 1849. I knew it. (laughs) So, not shocking, not shocking. And um, we're not going to spoil our alert. You will learn in the next episode why that is not a shocking thing but that is
1: Mr. Swedenborg that sounds like they formed a cult around his theology
0: (laughs) (laughs) I you know I'm interested especially that you can buy all the books and stuff and you can go on YouTube they have Lots of videos. So, I mean, if somebody's fascinated, there are resources out there. No, for sure.
1: And I'm glad that the history is there. Like, absolutely. Yes. And the resources. And it's inspiring. Mm-hmm. But to the, to the foundation specifically to foster a deeper connection with his teachings. So, so, sounds culty. <laughs> I mean, if he's one of your guides, that's great. By all means. Right. But... I don't know. Once an institution's involved, I start getting cult vibes and I'm just like, mm, nope, 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 Should nope, nope, So we put nope, a nope.
0: disclaimer, allegedly, 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 that's
1: true. Please don't come for me. I'm hypothesizing and speaking off the cuff. I know nothing about you and you might be beautiful, wonderful people.
0: Yes. Yes. <laughs> wow. Well, at least he gave us spiritualism. He did. And apparently he was brilliant. So props to him.
1: Yeah, I mean, he was able to inspire from beyond when it came to yeah. the development of spiritualism anyway. So he definitely Absolutely. was a force to be reckoned with. Um, I'd imagine he was a force to be reckoned with mentally. Just talking with him would have been amazing.
0: Oh, I would think so, too. And just his vast knowledge. And like he wrote his books in um Latin. And then it was interesting when he published his first works, he didn't put his name on them. And really? then once they become, yet yeah, became like more well-known and people admired him, then he was like, oh, yeah, I wrote those. I <laughs> put his name on it. Well, alright so, then. I know. I know. Then he claimed the works. Interesting, interesting man. And apparently Andrew Jackson Davis admired him. So, props. Yeah.
1: Good connection. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> a very deep
0: connection because it was in a trance.
1: Alright, well, might as well go on to the next uh, heavy influencer for the development of spiritualism. Now, this one's name, he himself probably won't be known to a whole lot of people, but I know that when I first heard about Franz Anton Mesmer, my immediate thought was Mesmer like to be mesmerized, like... To be hypnotized by somebody, literally that. It is literally to be hypnotized <laughs> because he is the, uh, the forerunner of that. So before I actually get into his thing, just a quick side note, content warning for people. Um, if you can't handle any more conversations about d- disease, quarantine, and pandemic responses, um, I'm, I'm sorry, but that's gonna come up. It will not be everything. It will not be terribly long, but it's, it's gonna come up because He got his start in science, too, and public health is a thing that's happening around him. So to get started, hypnotism, what do we know about it? Mostly what we see at the state and county fair, yeah? (laughs) Yes. We all see the hypnotist up there. And then if you're probably an older millennial or, you know, older Gen X, definitely boomer generation – You'll probably recall those uh, quit smoking or lose weight hypnoti- hypnotic, hypnotic ta- tapes that you could buy for like f- 15, 20 years, but definitely in the 90s. Um, yeah. Lose weight in 30 days. All you got to do is listen to this tape every night while you sleep. <laughs> like, I mean, it has permeated our culture for sure. But basically, hypnosis, its definition is the special psychological state with certain psych physiological attributes resembling sleep only superficially and marked by a functioning of the individual at a level of awareness other than the ordinary conscious state. The state is characterized by a degree of increased receptiveness and responsiveness in which inner experiential perceptions are given as much significance as is generally given only to external reality. So what is suggested to you becomes an existence in your head and that becomes reality for you. And while in the hypnotized state, The individual appears to heed only the communications of the hypnotist. So I don't know if you've seen uh, any of those, the shows or the um, well live shows or television shows where the person who's under the hypnosis is so far under that they literally only can seem to hear the communications or the talking of the hypnotist, even though there's like 50 people around them talking. Yes, 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 yes. Um, Well, apparently that's a standard thing. And they typically only respond in an uncritical automatic fashion, kind of like you're in a trance, like that that kind of monotone response. Right. Um, and in the hypnotic state, the individual tends to see, feel, smell, and otherwise perceive in accordance with the hypnotist suggestions, like I said. Mm-hmm. And even if those suggestions may be in contradiction to the actual stimuli in the present. I don't know why I always think about it because I don't think I ever saw it in any of the live shows I went to at the fair. But uh-huh. things like you're being tickled by a feather. No, you're being um pinched or poked by pins, when he's actually just tickling them with a feather and they scream in pain.
0: Yes, I have seen that.
1: Yeah. Uh-oh. It's super project trippy.
0: graduation. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we always had ours was at project graduation. <laughs> <laughs> Senior year. But no, I know what you mean. Yeah, they'll do whatever he says.
1: Absolutely. And then it can extend like past the hypnosis. It's called the post-hypnotic state. Where the effects of the suggestion can last for days afterwards, which, I mean, on one hand sounds terrifying as far as feeling like you're being poked by pins whenever you get tickled by a feather, but is literally the point of the weight loss and stop smoking tapes. Uh, It's supposed to last for days and days and days, and you just keep kind of reinstating the software, so to speak. Right. And I mean, technically, the history of hypnosis itself is as ancient as anything else that we're going to talk about. Like, it's not new and it's not novel. It dates right there with sorcery, magic and medicine. And it's been used in all three of them, too. But its scientific history is what begins in the latter part of the 18th century with Franz Mesmer. So he was born on May 23rd in 1734 in Swabia or Germany. Pretty sure I mispronounced the name of that city. Very sorry. He was a German physician whose system of therapeutics known as mesmerism was the forerunner of the modern practice of hypnotism. His dissertation of the University of Vienna, which was borrowed heavily from the work of British physician Richard Mead, He was a whole entire rabbit hole. Like I ended up buying a copy of a mechanical account of poisons in several essays because it was $5 on Amazon and I couldn't help myself.
0: (laughs) It sounds fascinating though. Poisons?
1: It's the poisons. Although I will say it drives me a little bit nuts because he's talking about poisonous animals and he differentiates between venomous and poisonous. But he, he calls them poisonous snakes. And I'm like, bruh, you're not eating them. Why are you saying that word? So apparently in the 18th century, uh, or yeah, in the 18th century, British physician Richard Mead, uh, had made the same mistake that everybody in the US makes that I'm constantly pointing out because I'm that person. V- venomous means it'll kill you by like injecting and poisonous will only kill you if you ingest it.
0: Can I admit you just taught me something? <laughs>
1: In good company with the guy that wrote the book like- hey you you you've got there he's been published he inspired mesmer like hey and i mean a, a lot of people and even people that i've corrected in the past or pointed it out to it's become a correcting because they know better and i'm an irritating cousin <laughs> anyway back on point he Wrote studies on preventive medicine, especially, was what got Mesmer's attention. So and it was directed towards the prevention of disease either in the community as a whole, which is basically public health, or in the individual, which is internal practices and health. And with the growth of medical knowledge, there was a shift to practical prevention. In 1388, there had been passed uh, the first sanitary act in England. It was directed towards the removal of nuisances. In 1443 came the first plague order recommending quarantine and cleansing. And in 1518, the first rough attempts at the notification of epidemic disease and isolation of a patient were made. Not really sure how that's different than quarantine, though.
0: Yeah. Um, Because
1: that's the whole point of quarantine is to isolate away from the population so that you don't infect people. Right. And then they started the study of mortality statistics in England in the 1600s. And then... That's basically the same century where we start seeing the basics of epidemiology actually starting to show up. It's in the mid-17th century, so the mid-1600s. Wow. An English practitioner in the first half of the 18th century would write on poisons, on plague, and methods of its prevention on smallpox, measles, and scurvy. And... What they meant by practitioner strikes me a little bit concerning because, you know, first thing he writes about is poison, but then he's talking about general health. So my <laughs> guess is that he's not inflicting poisons, but it's teaching you to look out for them, optimistically speaking. I mean, I spend way too many hours listening to the poisoner's cabinet. So I'm also like, mm. so first your focus is poison. Then you had to realize you had to resuscitate some of the people that you didn't mean to kill. Cool. Uh <laughs> <laughs> but realistically i'm sure he was trying to prevent people from inadvertently poisoning themselves we would
0: hope that we were we are gonna give him the benefit of the doubt
1: yes at least on the surface i'm still gonna live in my brain with the fact that he was trying to kill people
0: uh- <laughs> <laughs> maybe we should do a seance and we should contact
1: him oh that'd be a good idea he'd probably be confused because yeah. he wasn't involved in any of this Hey, like he wasn't us. involved in spiritualism, but you know what? He's probably less bothered than people like Elvis.
0: That's true. You can interrogate him. You're very good at that. You can find <laughs> out if you <he> <laughs> poison people. All
1: right, dude, sit down and give us some answers. Uh, on our On our next podcast, <laughs> <laughs> we will live broadcast a séance and regret every decision that's brought us to this point. <laughs>
0: My podcast number three.
1: (laughs) There we go. We have to at least get through to the foundations of spiritualism before we uh
0: (laughs) We'll wait. Okay. Put a pin in it. Future episode.
1: If the pin removes itself, then it's not either of us' fault. It's the it's the universe speaking. Uh
0: (laughs) where was I? I'm sorry, I interrupted you. We were talking about how he may have poisoned people, but we don't think he did. We think he was helping people. Not to poison themselves.
1: There we go. Yes. So along with this timeline, there was also vaccination was being introduced. So by Whoa. 1798, when we have the early and middle years in the 19th century, which is the 1800s, they're notable for the discoveries in the transmission of t- contagious diseases like typhus, cholera, typhoid fever, childbed or pluperal fever, which is a whole other problem I have because I spend too much time studying this time period. I, I really want to go to the Mutter Museum is my entire takeaway because he was a big proponent of hand washing and the guy who he was fighting with was a big in gynecology and he refused to wash his hands, going from patient to patient to cadaver to patient.
0: Oh, sorry, I'm like
1: gagging. Of course you're <laughs> gagging. You've had a kid. You know how gross it is without having to worry about cross-contamination from a dead body.
0: Ooh, he wouldn't have done well during this pandemic.
1: <laughs> He no. wouldn't have been. A, he, he probably, probably would have our, been dead in the first wave. <laughs>
0: he probably would
1: have. Oh my um, god. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm, continue. <laughs> Mutter is definitely a really interesting person to study if you're interested in the development of medicine in this time period, because he was big on hygiene and nutrition and pushing that as a big part of medicine. Now, what Mesmer suggested was that there was. On top of all of the things that were being discovered about the human body and how disease transmission works, he was suggesting that there was a gravitational attraction of the planets and their effect on the human body. So the gravitation of the planets pulled on an invisible fluid. You mentioned Swedenborg had one of those. Yes. Um, And that invisible fluid would be pulled on... He initially called it animal gravitation or animal magnetism. Which is not what we mean today by animal magnetism. This has nothing to do with pheromones and attraction and the dating scene. Uh, (laughs) This is literally the gravitation of magnet magnetic poles between big centers of gravity. It's basically it's a theory wherein the invisible fluid in the body could be acted upon with magnets or any magnetized object and manipulated by a trained person as a disease was the result of obstacles in the fluids flow through the body. And these obstacles could be broken by crises, which would be basically a trance state often ending in delirium or convulsions in order to restore the harmony of personal fluid flow. Mesmer devised various therapeutic treatments to achieve harmonious fluid flow. In many of these treatments, he was forceful and rather dramatic as a participant. Now, I want to give a little bit of credence to this one because this sounds really similar to both acupuncture and acupressure and the Ayurvedic principle of marma points. And admittedly, I'm a lot more familiar with acupuncture and acupressure. But the idea of, in order to maintain a full body health, you have to make sure that your blockages aren't causing disease, basically, and you want to, like, free the blockages. I'm not well-versed in any of these topics enough to be able to lecture <laughs> anyone on them, but because it's a, it's a school of thought, it's a, it's a medical practice that exists in very diverse cultures, I mean... Mesmer may not have been making this up. He may have also come into contact with people because this is, you know, far enough in time that we've had contact with Asian cultures and adapted, quote, snagged and used for our own purposes, different uh, therapeutic techniques to help with health and to seem exotic and mysterious when talking to people of the upper class. <laughs> But so he may have been influenced by people who were actually practicing these medicines, or he may have had it in a vision and it happens to coincide with something that somebody else has come up with. Right. So I don't know. As, as crazy as it sounds, it's got a little bit of validity in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but apparently it's not, like not everyone... Ag- what?
0: Oh, no. I said it's kind of like some of the sweet more, Like when they have it in a vision, it's hard to not say, yeah, that could have been in a vision. Like it's just... How are we ever going to really know?
1: Exactly. Well, the good news is we weren't the only ones who had this conflict in our brains of is this true or not? Because uh, he was accused of fraud in Vienna and he moved to Paris where he developed a solid career up until he attracted the focus and antagonism of the medical professionals Uh-oh. Uh oh! in Paris. And in 1784, King Louis the 16th yes, that King Louis, um, <laughs> he who lost his head appointed a commission of scientists and physicians to investigate Mesmer's methods. On that commission was actually Benjamin Franklin. Wow, very cool. Yeah. Uh, well, cool for us to know about, not cool for Mesmer. They reported that he was unable to support his scientific claims and the Mesmerist movement faded. <gasps> oh, Ben. Yeah. Come on now. Right? Hater. Given his freedom of thought in so many other directions, like, give us a little bit of credit there, Ben. Kidding. i still like him it's fine well i like him and i dislike him it depends on which topic we're talking about
0: truth truth <laughs> solid
1: statement so whatever can be said about his therapeutic system mesmer did achieve a really close rapport with his patients and he seems to have actually alleviated certain nervous disorders which is really impressive because hypochondria is not a new concept and moreover the idea of a harmless versus harmful therapeutics in treating hypochondria is a consideration because sometimes you have those patients that you have to pull out of the hypochondria like no it's in your head you need to readjust to reality and remind yourself that you're healthy but there are others that are so far invested into their perceived diseases that they need a treatment and if you give them a treatment that's an actual medical treatment it could cause more harm than good versus something that is basically a placebo Yeah. So even if he was making things up, he could have been helping people is kind of the handoff. Although, depending on what their financial state was and how much he charged, harm is a relative concept. Right. (laughs) Now, to tie it to our podcast, in the occult and spiritualism world, Mesmer's method, named Mesmerism after its creator, (laughs) uh, continued to interest medical practitioners even today. A number of clinicians used it without fully understanding it until the middle of the 19th century when the English physician James Braid studied the phenomenon and cur- coined the term hypnotism and hypnosis mm. after the Greek god of sleep, hypnos. Oh, I kind of love that. Yeah, All right. Very cool. And hypnosis then attracted widespread scientific interest in the 1880s. There was a French country physician who used Ms. Merck techniques and drew the support of a profession- professor of medicine at Strasbourg. Independently, they had written that that hypnosis involved no physical forces and no physiological processes, but it was a combination of psychological meditative responses to suggestion. During a visit to France about the same time, Sigmund Freud was impressed by the therapeutic potential of hypnosis for neurotic disorders. On his return to Vienna, he used hypnosis to help neurotics recall disturbing events that they had apparently forgotten. As he began to develop his system of psychoanalysis, however, the theoretical considerations as well as the difficulty he encountered in hypnotizing some patients led Freud to shift his focus to free association oh Apparently, in general psycho in general psychoanalysts now see hypnosis as an associated form of free associative techniques that they use in psychoanalytic practices. So, he started with hypnosis, shifted to free as- uh, free association and they're like, "Cool. They go together." And this is a thing. Very cool. And hypnosis was actually used as a technique in the psychoanalytic treatment of soldiers who were experiencing combat neuroses during World Wars 1 and 2. Wow. Yeah. That's Some researchers have even more recently put forth uh, different theories of what hypnosis is and how it can be understood, but there's still no generally accepted theory for the phenomenon.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: Yeah. And this was like the the last dates that it really gives us strongly as far as it entering the scientific world is in the 1880s here in the States, which is, you know, dead center in the waves of uh, in all of the waves of spiritualism here in the states and like we know that a big part of what kept spiritualism going was the development of all these different sciences like if you can transmit a message via telegraph wire why can't you transmit a message across the spiritual plane right so you add the science of hypnosis into all of this Mm -hmm. and it does add a different level of credence to a lot of people however it also lends credence to frauds because if you can hypnotize the people sitting at your table, then they all believe that they saw a thing that wasn't really there. So That's true. It can be seen in lots of different lights.
0: Oh, yeah. So the story of spiritualism that, yes, you have real mediums, putting that out there, but you have a lot of
1: people that took advantage of the movement, too. Yeah. And you also have a lot of people who feel like they can't deliver on command. So Mm -hmm. even if they are a real medium... 30% 30% of the time, the other 70% of the time, they have to make up for it with a little bit of a flash and bang.
0: Yeah. I never thought about, though, you're right, if you're a good hypnotist, that would be so easy to just hypnotize your sitter. Gosh, that's fascinating. Oh, then you could make them see whatever you wanted them to see. I mean, probably even hear or feel.
1: Wow.
0: Yep. Very interesting.
1: But... Yeah, um, he is not considered a father of any aspect of the spiritualist movement, the same way Swedenborg is, but he was definitely a heavy hitter and a massive influence to the movement.
0: Fascinating. Very cool. I mean, going from what we think of as county fairs or just seeing it, you know, on stage to gosh, the whole history of it.
1: It's really fascinating. And that didn't even get into the history of the ancient practices, which I have not gone into um, in my studies nearly enough. But it's, I mean, the suggestibility of the human mind, turns out, has been a thing for as long as humans have had minds. Wow. That would be an interesting
0: deep dive into ancient hypnotism. Well, and how we still have hypnotherapy today. Mm -hmm. And that it's still a...
1: A really popular alternative for people. Absolutely. I mean, not to keep quoting medical shows, but there's a whole episode of Scrubs where Turk was doing a, an appendectomy on somebody who, rather than being knocked out with anesthesia, was hypnotized. <laughs> wow. They woke up midway through the procedure, but yeah, I watch too much <laughs> television if that's not abundantly clear.
0: No, I do. I just, one, I watch enough as well. I I just can't contribute yet. I will. (laughs) Like, I can't tie in my guilty pleasure of the real housewives to this yet.
1: I'm sure Uh, we will find a tie in if only because we're going to talk about the Gilded Age and there are definite comparisons there.
0: Yes, there are. There are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, there are Real Housewives episodes where they have mediums come.
1: Those would be fun to pick apart and watch. Oh, man. That means I'm going to have to watch them. (laughs) I'm going to make you. (laughs) (laughs) Fine, but we're going to be recording in person and there's definitely going to be wine.
0: No, but it's just interesting how these things still not only did they influence spiritualism but they still influence us today it's um it's just really cool i mean it makes me think of that saying the past is never really past it's still everything still has an impact on modern day
1: oh absolutely that's why i mean that's why i love studying history it gives me context for why things are the way they are now
0: absolutely well that's a great way to start that And especially as we deep dive next week, you may be hearing some of these names
1: again. So stay tuned. But until then, um, I am Caitlin. This is Jessica. And this is Calling All Spirits.